Opinions stated in this podcast should not be used as evidence. Assume that any cited evidence can be found in the related Candor Briefs releases. Thank you, and welcome to Former Partners. Welcome to Former Partners Podcast. My name is Quentin. And I'm Lucas. And we are Former Partners. On today's issue of the podcast, we are going to be addressing Public Forum Debate, a beginner's guide. Yeah, sort of an introduction. If you've never done it or you're just starting to do it, um, this will be sort of base level how everything works and how you should debate it. Everything that we talk about today is just going to be general information. We're not going to be talking about specific evidence. This isn't necessarily related to our Candor Briefs project. This is solely for the Former Partners podcast. Yeah, this is just a, a good introduction of public forum. So a couple of things we're going to be going over is general stuff, um, what a resolution is, how to read it, how to cut cards and what good resources are, how to flow, different types of judges, etiquette, and then actual how debate rounds are going to work. Um, so we don't know how long this is going to be. We're just going to kind of go with it. And like we just said, we're going to start with some general things about public forum debate. So the first thing that you're going to learn about with public forum debate is the fact that there are two sides in any given round. There is an affirmative team and a negative team. And those teams are either affirming, which is supporting or negating, which is saying, hey, this isn't okay. A resolution and we'll talk about exactly what a resolution is here in a second yeah so one of the, the important things to know is that in public forum debate it's the only one where the pro team does not always speak first in public forum you'll flip a coin and whoever wins gets to choose either pro or con or first or second What's interesting about this, and we'll touch on it in case building later in the podcast, obviously, is that it doesn't always yield significant clash, and it requires you to structure your negative cases specifically a lot differently than you think you would. Yeah, um, it it is a little bit weird if you are switching from a different debate to public forum, um, but really it, it'll make sense once you get used to it. So the very first thing we're going to give you guys is the time outline of how a public forum round works. Generally speaking, they are around 45 minutes. There are 11 speeches. Is that correct? No, there are eight speeches. Eight speeches. Well, I cannot count. Eight speeches and three crossfires. So 11 sections of timed speaking, but only eight actual speeches. So those the way that works is it's both the first speakers give their constructive case where they read their case, and those are four minutes long each. After that, those two first speakers have a questioning period called crossfire, where they can ask each other about the case, um, about framework, that kind of thing. Following that, you'll have the second speaker from both partnerships approach, and they will do what we refer to as our attacking speeches. And this is where they're going to go over the contentions or observations brought up by the opposing team. And they're going to do their very best to counter them or use a logical loop of some kind to get out of it. Um, after that, those two second speakers will also have their own questioning period. 
the second speaker crossfire. And then the first speaker comes back up and will address the attacks made on their case and do what's called the rebuttal speech, where they rebut the attacks. They say they attacked by saying this, and this is why that is wrong. And we'll go over this stuff more in a second in a little bit with how the actual speeches work. But after those rebuttal speeches, you will have what is known as the grand crossfire. This is where all four people in the debate round, both the first and second speakers of both teams, will remain seated and they will ask each other questions across about the entire debate round. And this is your chance for final clarification. Yep. After this, there is no more conversation between the two teams. Because at the end of the round is when you get my favorite, the final focus is what we refer to it as, or the summary speech. Some of you may have heard it as that. And it's where the second speaker comes up and they have two minutes to give you all your voting issues, what impacts they've won, and ultimately why they think they deserve the ballot. Yep. So that those times are 443 and then they will also receive two minutes of preparation time that you are allowed to use in between speeches at any time, but generally only in between speeches. Yep, and that's all cumulative, so you get two minutes total. Can't, don't have to use it all at once, don't have to use it at all. And again, the last thing we're hitting in the podcast today is going to be case building and how these speeches are structured exactly, and that's where we're going to go into more specifics about their purpose. Yeah, but first let's talk about resolutions. Um, what a resolution is, essentially it's a statement to affirm or deny based on which, which team you're on. As we said, there is a pro and a con or an affirmative and a negative team, and they are always going to be discussing a resolution that they have predecided a side on. Right. So if, if you're pro, you are affirming or supporting the statement made in the resolution. If you're con, you are denying um, whatever that statement is in the resolution. Or at least parts of it. Yeah, at least at least part of it. Pro has to affirm and support all of it. Con can really say no to any part um, without issues. That's just their job. In policy debate, which if you're here right now, you may not necessarily know what that is, but that's fine. The resolutions generally contain, or rather they don't contain, but require the production of an actor and an action, which an actor is someone like the U.S. federal government, a group that has power and the ability to cause something to happen, and an action is what they're doing, such as the U.S. federal government putting new seatbelt laws into place. And in public forum debate, these two things are generally given to you rather than you having to develop them like right. you would in policy. So, yeah, the, the resolution can and usually does contain the actor, which is usually like the U.S. federal government or, or some United sort of Nations. government um, and an action. So that's the rest of the resolution. And the current one is that they should prioritize reducing the federal debt over promoting economic growth. So there's a person and an action. Um, and then you support or deny that. So that's what a resolution is. It's pretty simple. What there's a resolution does not contain is purpose. And that's what you are there to provide for the judge. Oftentimes, these actions are being taken, but the resolution does not say why they're being taken. And that's your job as the affirmative or negative to say, oh, we need to take this action because of X, or we should not take this action because of X. And that's where you get some freedom in it that's fun for public forum, for sure. 
And the things you're going to be saying nine times out of 10 on why you should or should not do it is going to be either evidence or just something you've pulled from one of your resources. So what a good transition, Lucas. Thank you. I've, I've been following our outline pretty closely this time. That was beautiful. That made me feel good about this episode. Also, if you are watching this episode... Watching? That's a good point. If you are listening <laughs> to this episode, we want you to know we really appreciate you. We are still very young in doing this. All feedback is appreciated. If you have any suggestions, if you just want to shout out, if you have some questions, send them to us on... Twitter. Twitter? Yeah. At Former Partners Podcast. No podcast. Just at Former Partners. My apologies. Just at Former Partners. I should really know this by now. Yeah. As you can tell, Lucas doesn't run. I run the page, so... Yeah, I'm not exactly looped into the social media side of things right now. (laughs) I've been trying to give my brain a break in that part of my life. Everybody needs a break sometimes, man. But like we were talking about, resources and evidence cutting, uh, that's mostly what you're going to be talking about in regards to a resolution. So we wanted to talk about what are some good sources, what are some medium sources, what are some bad sources, and what are some eh sources. Right. So one of the good sources are public databases. Um, such as Google Scholar. You can get there from typing scholar.google.com. And that lets you do a general search term like you can with Google, except it will bring back research articles and um, just really good, high-quality evidence and information. Depending on how your school is set up, if you're a student listening to this right now, you maybe even be able to go ask your librarian. You probably have way more than Google Scholar available to you. A lot of them will even cross-reference with your books, and there will be things written there that you cannot find on the internet. So this is a really great place to go. Yeah, talk to your librarian about whatever database you use at your school. Um, We had one. I I don't remember what it was. I believe it started with a P. Yeah, I don't know. Regardless, there's loads of them, and a lot of schools pay a lot of good money, and a lot of students don't even use them. So use those resources while you have them available, because once you graduate, it won't be free anymore. Yeah, I wish I still had access to that stuff. Um, Another good source or sources are think tanks. This is things like the Heritage Foundation, the Brookings Institute, Cato. Um, These are just high-quality groups of people doing research um, and diving deep into issues. And they put out really, really good work. And it's almost always for the purpose of being informative. And that's what we use as the distinction for why this is a good source, is that the primary purpose of the publication is to be informative, not to entertain. Right, and non-biased. That there's no, there's no personal agenda between whatever opinion they've put out. Um, it's just they generally try to stick to the facts and and show what that means for any given topic. If there is a personal agenda from sources like these, it's not coming through very clearly. So these are definitely some good places to go. Um, now, what we would call a medium source, I would, I would say medium to high, medium to good source um, would be news media, such as the New York Times, LA Times, CNN, Kansas City Star, The Atlantic, Telegraph. These are all just pretty typically pretty st- straight down the middle um, in terms of bias. They just kind of report what's going on um, and, and have pretty good articles. But at the same time, a lot of these media sources are, or news media sources, excuse, excuse me, are 
just that. They are news media, meaning that there is a secondary purpose of entertainment. They're trying to get people to read these things. So there's a chance that there could be some bias in there. There's a chance that the information might be a little bit conflated just to make it more sensational for the reader or the listener. Right. Um, And so there will be some exaggeration, which sometimes isn't a bad thing if you're trying to find um, heartstrings cards that will uh, portray some emotion to the judge. Um, but generally, if you want some just, these are the facts, this is how it works, um, think tanks and in higher class news media can work for you. Now, as well as the public databases. Right. Um, bad sources are things like medias and blogs, um, blogs, personal websites, wiki sites, anything that anybody can write. Just don't. So here's the thing. I'm going to tell you guys a secret right now. Wikipedia is awesome. And here's why. Give them three bucks, please. (laughs) Yes, give Wikipedia $3. They need to stay open. But they're awesome. And here's why. You can go to Wikipedia. You can type in pretty much anything you want to know about. There's probably a page or pages on it. And all of that information is not good to use in a debate round. But if you go to the bottom of those Wikipedia pages, there's almost always citations. And all of those sources are where they got their information from. And that's going back to most likely a medium or even a good source by doing that. Right. So if you find something on Wikipedia that you're like, wow, I wish I could use this. Don't use it from Wikipedia. Look at whatever the citation number is. Scroll down to the bottom and look at that citation and read that from the original author. And you can cut that and it'll be a good card. And chances are they're probably hyperlinked. You might even just be able to control click it and bring it up in a new tab. It's right there. You're ready to go. It's awesome. Yeah. So don't use, don't use sources that anybody can add to, but the good ones like Wikipedia, you can usually find the original source. So, The reason we call these bad sources is due to the fact that what just Quentin just said, anybody can add to a lot of things. Now, certain Wikipedia pages, I know they're locked. Uh, Only people with official editor access can go in and change it. And those people usually have a certain amount of credibility. But at the end of the day, there still are pages on Wikipedia that anybody can edit. There still are blogs on the website on the Internet that are just anybody from off the street saying things. And you have to stay away from that. And you have to stay away from media, too, because it's usually sheer entertainment. You don't want to use a YouTube video for your source in a debate round. Now, what what we made a new a sort of new description called ass sources um, for what we would call biased media. This is news media, um, news com- is it companies? Yeah, I believe so. Or the corporations. News corporations, yes. yes. That typically have a pretty strong bias um, towards one side or the other politically. We're talking about Fox News leaning super far right um, and MSNBC leaning super far left. So they'll let out some bias in a lot of their articles. We choose those two because there's not a lot of disagreement on either side that those are biased news sources. The right pretty much agrees to the fact that Fox News is their source, and the left pretty much agrees to the fact that MSNBC is their source. 
whether or not other publications are heavily biased, things like CNN, things like the New York Times, Huffington Post. That isn't for us to say. We're just using those as examples and things that you need to be careful of. Really, any publication, even something from a think tank, technically could be biased. You just have to read for content rather than just for the information you're looking for. And and the tricky things is the tricky thing is with websites like Fox News and MSNBC. Um, what what they're reporting isn't wrong, and it's not wrong to use in a debate round. Just be ready to be called out if it seems a little bit biased. Um, or different from other evidence. It's very common for evidence from biased news sources to make a no true Scotsman type error where, you know, no true American would think that we shouldn't increase taxes on the rich or no real Republican would think that we don't need to ban abortion. And they're going to make those assumptions with that bias to try and really strike a chord with people who already have those opinions. And that's where we're getting the concept of biased media from. So um, don't don't just totally go away from those, what we're putting in the sources of biased uh, news. But be careful. If you can find it from a different source, probably do that. Um, but, you know, it's up to you. Now, if you find something that's from a extremely biased source, then your best bet is going to be and try and distance the author from the publication. So don't cite CNN if the author of the article from CNN is somebody who is generally unbiased. They're just a professor from Harvard or whatever. Then you can use them as the source rather than CNN. Yes, it was still published on CNN. Someone can try to throw something at you about that, but you're going to be able to defend the original author rather than the publication that put it up. Right. And that actually, I forgot, some other good sources would be like Harvard Reviews, uh, Duke, Yale Reviews. A lot of those universities um, have journals where they report and and put out information on these topics. As well as, I'm just having like a, a an epiphany moment here, uh, digging through some of the old dissertation papers from these Ivy League schools is also a really good way to find information that you probably would never find anywhere else. You might not realize that someone 35 years ago did their doctorate on whatever debate topic you're now doing it on, and they might have had a whole different perspective on it than anybody in the modern day does, but it still holds true because it was such a high-level publication originally. And I've found some of my best evidence digging through backlogged info like Just that. Just weird stuff. Weird good stuff. Now, that brought up another good point. Um, how old is too old for public forum? There isn't such a thing depending on the nature of the evidence. Right. So if, 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 it's, if it's theoretical or um, if it doesn't have specific, like, by this date, this will happen, um, it can always be used... But generally what I try to do, because Public Forum is a debate based around current events, you can find a lot of evidence from recently. I tend to use older evidence in framework arguments or in, and honestly, using it in a framework argument really sets up more credibility because if you could use it in a framework argument and then your opponent can't show a counter to it, then you can say something along the lines of, well, judge, that our framework was true 40 years ago. It's true today, blah, 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 so on and so forth. You should vote for us. Yep. And, and if you don't know, framework is just setting up for the judge how they should judge the round based on whatever you say, whether it's based on 
the greatest good for the greatest amount of people or lives or economic impacts, that kind of thing. That's framework telling the judge, hey, this is what we're debating, so you should vote for whoever team does X better. And that's what framework is. Um, so one thing I want to talk about is what is a card? You'll hear this term used all the time. Can do you have this card? I cut this card. A card is three things. One, a tagline, which we'll talk about in a second. Two, a citation, which we'll talk about in a second. And three, the evidence itself, which we kind of just talked about sources. So what is a tagline? Um, a tagline is a three to five or maybe seven word introduction to the evidence itself that has purpose and has some sort of impact with it. One thing to know is you shouldn't power tag, which power tagging is when the tagline doesn't exactly match what the evidence itself says. So you might have evidence that says spending more money on childhood education is not great, but it might be tagged as spending money on childhood education will cause economic collapse. Right. So power tagging is when you just exaggerate what the evidence says which just don't do that. It's really easy not to do it. And if you ever have a piece of evidence that you've cut where you're having trouble determining the actual impact, show it to somebody on your team, show it to your coach, shoot, send it to us. We'll help you figure it out. We would love to be a resource to you guys. The next thing is citations. That is the part of the card that actually shows who wrote where the evidence is from now the rules state at least under the nsda that a citation needs an author a date a publication source the title of the article or whatever the url so that you can pull it up and the date that you accessed it so whatever date that you actually copied pasted the card took it out of the article and put it on in a document put the date on Now, if it's from a magazine or a book or anything, you also need the title, the chapter, and the page number of whatever part you're using. Circling back just for a second, because I think we might have skipped something, in talking about what a tagline is, where we said it's a three to seven word introduction to the card that has purpose slash impact, what that means is if you have a piece of evidence that's about childhood education good, then you need to make sure that that's conveyed in the tagline of the card. You don't just want to read the title of the article, which might be how early childhood education affects you and your children. And then the impact that you're trying to pull from it is actually that it's good for the economy. And those two things really follow. Your tagline should just be a brief indication of what the evidence says so that if your opponents or your judge doesn't hear the card itself, they know what the argument is based on the tagline. And that's what's going to help you with instances of different kinds of judges, whether that be a lay judge or a flow judge. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in probably like two or three minutes. Yeah. And so the last thing to know also is that NSDA rules say if you are cutting evidence, you have to have the full paragraph. So you can't just copy and paste a single line or a couple lines. You have to copy and paste the whole paragraph. And then from there, you can choose what to read and what not to read. 
Now, also, don't leave out certain parts that say the opposite. If it says something like childhood education is not beneficial, you can't just choose not to read the part that says not and say childhood education is beneficial. Exactly. That is a... I mean, that's just that's abusive. Cheating. Yeah. You will get called out and probably disqualified. At the very least, most people are going to lose respect for you. If the judge is paying attention at all, they're going to flip around the other team. It's just not worth it. Don't do it. Yeah. I mean, I really, I, I would disqualify based and on that. It's easy to do on accident. So again, if you're not sure what a card is actually saying, check with your coach, check with a teammate, check with one of us even. And real quick tangent that's relative to debate. Do you know why they're called cards, Quentin? Um, because the way it used to be was they would cut out newspaper articles and put them on uh, index cards and have them filed. Yeah, I know. You know what? I know Jim from West Coast Debate. We've talked a little bit. He told me about how it used to be. It was kind of scary. I'm just thinking of... Uh... Is it Wick from Carthage that used to do oh, debate? Yeah. He was the one who told me all about that. Wow. Not to use anybody's name or likeness without the permission. That's all you need to know is that it was Wick. I've, wow. Yeah, I've, we used to talk to him about debate a lot. He was a pretty lucrative debater back in the day. Yeah. Prolific, I think, is a better word than lucrative. Yeah, evidence, evidence cards used to be called cards because, yeah, they were written on actual little index cards. Because they didn't have laptops. <laughs> and trading evidence was literally like trading cards. It was kind of cool, actually. Like Pokemon cards. Or Yu-Gi-Oh. Yeah, I like Yu-Gi-Oh more. Anyway. Also, Yu-Gi-Oh, show some love. Yeah. Hey, Yu-Gi-Oh, sponsor us. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in talking about what a resolution is and the fact there's an affirmative team affirming it and a negative team negating it, you have all this evidence, you have all these arguments going on, you you got a resolution that you're trying to stay on one side of, how are you going to keep track of all that in your head? Well, the simple fact is you can't, and that's why you have to flow the round. Wow. Flowing is a visual, a visual representation of the, air quotes, flow of arguments being made on the round. You are keeping track on pen and paper visually so you can know who said what to what argument um, in response on a piece of paper there is not a correct way to flow there are standard styles that have been adopted by different debate teams in different parts of the country that get passed down to every class because they're very accessible for the average student however don't be afraid of developing your own flow style and at this point, I'm hoping that there's a visual representation of an example flow on the screen and we can kind of talk about it a little bit. Yeah. So typically, the way it'll be is you start from the left and move to the right. On the left, you write down the case arguments, your contentions or observations and taglines. And then during your opponent's speech, they'll attack your contentions and you will draw a line and write what they said and then... Whenever you write a rebuttal speech, you'll do the same thing so that you can just read left to right. I said this, then they said this, then I said this. And it's a good visual representation of how the arguments went during the round. 
It makes it really easy to do impact calculus at the end of the round as well for second speakers primarily during your final focus. With a proper flow of arguments, you'll be able to very easily select two to five impacts off of your flow that your team won that you can then bring back up because they're still relevant at that point and explain why those are your voting issues and why you should get the ballot. Yep. Pretty simple to understand. Um, it's just, it's hard to convey w without showing you. So if I remember to, I'm going to upload a picture of what a flow should look like. If you don't already know, if you do know, who cares? There but, might even be a little bit of after effects on there to maybe illustrate some of this. But chances are we're going to do a full episode on flowing at some point in the future as part yeah, of this introduction sometime. series. Yeah. Um, so now moving from what flowing is and what its purpose is, let's talk about judges a little bit. There are typically two types of judges. There is a lay judge and a flow judge. The difference is pretty much just experience. A lay judge is called that because they are a lay person. They are straight off the street. They don't have any debate background. They're not taking notes, and they're not flowing. They're a flow judge, by comparison, is the opposite. Generally speaking, they have a debate background, or at the very least, they are versed in whatever current event you're discussing. Or they just understand argumentation in general. Yes, they will most likely flow, but again, not every flow judge flows. We only call them flow judges because we're trying to reiterate the fact that this is going to be a judge that can follow you around more easily. Yeah. Um, so a flow judge really just means that they have a better understanding of debate. Now, there is a difference in these judges because depending on which they are, it'll change how you debate a little bit. You have to watch your jargon yeah. with lay judges, which is funny because the word jargon is not super common anymore. So it's almost become jargon for itself. By jargon, I'm referring to slang that is unique to speech and debate. So if you go up and you're talking about doing a permutation or if you go up and you're talking about the actor and the action and the resolution, you're going to want to do that kind of stuff with a flow judge or at the very least, you're going to want to very clearly explain it if you think you have a lay judge. Right. So if you if you have a flow judge and your opponents didn't attack an argument, you can just tell them silence is compliance. We win this. But if you have a lay judge and you say silence is compliance, they're going to think you're talking about something else and it's going to sound really bad. So if you have a lay judge, you need to say, my opponents didn't attack this. So based on public forum rules, they agree with it. You just have to give more explanation and more lay terms to a lay judge. It's really all it is. And don't judge a book by its cover. Just because you think you have a lay judge doesn't mean you have a lay judge. Just because you think you have a flow judge doesn't mean you have a flow judge. They might be drawing a picture. They might be checking their phone under the table. You can't control any of these things. So really, the best approach to any debate round with your judge is to not worry about it. Just pick a style that is approachable for pretty much anybody and explain yourself clearly and concisely. And that's all you can do. Yeah, at, at the end of the day... I've, I have two things to say here. First, at the end of the day, a flow judge and a lay judge, you know, it's not going to be their fault that you won or lost. The debate round is going to go the same way. Typically, the better debater is going to win. Um, but sometimes there is that chance 
So there's nothing wrong with asking a judge, hey, do you have any experience with debate? Um, will you be flowing? That kind of thing. No. Just so you know. Don't chat up the judge too much. Yeah. And don't try and be the judge's friend. Because, Quentin, who is the judge? What? Who is the judge? Are you kidding me right now? <laughs> Wait, what? The Great Debaters? Oh, who I haven't watched that judge, movie in so Quentin? long. The judge is God. Oh, Why Jesus. is he God? Because he decides who wins and who loses, not my opponent. I remember that scene now. I just got goosebumps. Thank you, Denzel, for that wonderful performance. Also, Denzel, show us some love. Please sponsor yeah, hey, us. Hey, Denzel, give us a sponsorship. Because that movie was fantastic, and it brought a lot of positive attention to speech and debate, just like we're trying to do, just not nearly on large of a scale. Yeah, you should watch The Great Debaters if you haven't. It really won't help you with public forum because they're doing something entirely different. But it's closer to extemporaneous debate than anything. Yeah, it's pretty cool, though. Yeah, you would. It's a good movie. It's got great actors in, in it, and it's a really good way to introduce yourself to debate if you've literally never seen anything about it before. And it will make you feel good about doing debate. It'll make you feel cool because Denzel Washington is in it. Denzel Washington is cool. Now, we were talking about chatting up the judge. That kind of bleeds over into etiquette. Um, etiquette is the do's and don'ts of debate outside of a debate. Actually, no, in a debate round, too. These are also our opinions on what etiquette are. There isn't a literal debate etiquette book. But in our experience, these are the things that rub people the wrong way. So in our circuit. Everything's yeah. different regionally. That's true. So in Missouri, the Misha circuit, this is our experience these things rub people the wrong way maybe refrain from doing these or at least do it in a way that's not too risque yeah and the point of this is in our experience doing these things loses you rounds but not doing these things won't really hurt you so we typically just stayed away from these things because it didn't set us back at all but possibly doing these things could have one of these things is talking with your partner during opponent speeches just don't just, uh. it's so rude so you're standing up there and you're giving your case constructive read and you get to your second contention and the first thing you hear someone say is oh man that's a lot of crap under their breath and i don't know about you but when someone interrupts me and when somebody is a naysayer to what i say before i even complete my thought it's somewhat frustrating. Very, uh, very frustrating. And it's a really good way to get on the wrong side of your opponent. If your judge is paying attention, especially if they're a flow judge, and if they hear it, it's a good way to get on the wrong side of your judge. So just don't do it. And there's actually a couple tips and tricks we can give you of how to get around it. Uh, first would be sticky notes. Yes, they saved us so many times. Just literally whatever you're thinking of telling your partner, just write it down in shorthand on a sticky note. You can even hand it to your partner in the middle of their speech. So yeah. if you need to communicate something to them right then, write it down on a sticky note and just pass it really casually to your partner without breaking their concentration. Yep. Um, more on this, too, is don't don't shake the judge's hand. It's weird, honestly. You're not... No one's in question of the fact that what the judge is doing today is respectful, is respectable. They're giving up their time and... Well, mostly just their time. And they're putting in, hopefully, some effort to provide you guys with a positive experience with debate and to give you some excellent feedback and criticism. 
you don't need to go and show them how awesome they are. They already know, I promise. Plus, shaking the judge's hand, at least from where we're from, was often viewed as a way of trying to sneak a look at the ballot. Yeah, I was about to say, when somebody tries to shake my hand after a round, I think they're trying to see the ballot. And I'm, I'm not here to show you your RFD before you receive your ballots for back from your coach. Now, if your coach decides to tell you your record before results are posted, that's totally yeah, that's at your to coach's them. means. Like, that's not a wrong or a right thing. We don't have the authority to say one way or another on that. But just probably avoid looking like you're trying to sneak a peek at what the judge might have been doing on their side of things. Because, again, who is the judge? Judge is God. And they decide who wins and loses, not your opponent. You don't need to go up there and shake their hands because the decision's already made. Also, some people just like personal space. True facts. And don't want to shake the hands of 16 and 17-year-olds when there are so many people around and so many germs flying around. Part of it for me also is like, I remember debate. I remember like not washing my hands for an entire weekend pretty I much. I don't even want to shake your hand right now because yeah. you just said that. <laughs> I just mean there's so much going on. There's so many people. It is a a ground for growing germs. And don't forget, some people just have anxiety. They just don't like contact with other people they don't know very well. So you're just avoiding opening a potential can of worms by not getting too personal or too buddy-buddy with the judge. Yep, just give them their space. Don't try to shake their hand. Another thing that's weird with public forum is, and debate in general, during crossfires and cross-examinations, cross you are speaking to the opponent, but you are still giving a speech to the judge. So you need to be looking at the judge during crossfire. It feels weird at first, I know. But when they are asking you questions and you are answering, that is another speech. And understand that the judge is there as a, not only as somebody who's going to be giving you criticism, but as a mediator. So... Yeah. If it's a coach, especially, and you just ask some ridiculously abusive, offhanded stuff, you're going to be looking at them while you say it because they're going to have the chance to give you a facial response and maybe even stop the round and be like, hey, whoa, hold on. You can't do that. And it's also just what we're told to do. You are supposed to look at the judge during crossfire. Um, again, it is unnatural, but it helps prevent undue aggression between the right. two people asking each other questions. Right. And that leads to just don't be rude or mean. You can be authoritative without being mean. You can show control of a round without being rude and degrading to somebody. And this is a really cool time to talk about something called catharsis. I get it. High school isn't always the most fun place in the whole world. You're probably mad and confused about a lot of different things. And you might use activities like debate or sports as your outlet for those feelings. Using anger uh, is not a bad thing in these types of activities. That's what catharsis is. It's having negative emotion that you need to release and considering it and then putting it out in a healthy way. You can be angry without being hateful. And the difference really is, is that people get angry about things, but people hate people. And as long as you're staying on that anger side of thing and that passion side of things, and you're directing it at your opponent's cases and not at your opponents or at some sort of ideology about who they are, you'll be fine. 
feel free to let that out. Just don't get carried away with it. Yeah. There, there is a very fine line between being emotional and passionate about the topics you're discussing and being mean and hating your opponents themselves. So just be aware of that line and don't cross it. Yeah. Pack your gym bag like boxers do. This is the best example. Uh, boxers, they don't just get violent in their day-to-day lives and knock people out on the street because that doesn't make any sense. That's really counterintuitive to what they're trying to do. Whenever they're frustrated, they think about it. They go pack their gym bag. They get their, their gloves. They go to the gym. They get their spot at the gym. And then they let loose on the bag. And that's what you need to do is you have to pack your gym bag, get your evidence together. You have to go to the gym, go to your tournaments, get your schedule, and you have to let it loose in the bag. You have to show that catharsis, show that passion, but not show hatefulness or hatred. All right. Um, so that's about it for etiquette. There's some other things we could talk about. If you have any questions, let us know. Um, what should I do in this situation or that? Um, but that's a pretty good basis for etiquette um, and all, in a lot of aspects of debate. If you have any interesting or funny stories about times that etiquette was breached in one of your rounds, feel free to send those to us on Twitter at Former Partners. We would love to read about it. We might even talk about it in a later episode. And if you want us to use your name, just tell us that in the message. Yep. So, um, now getting a little bit more specific into public forum, um, let's talk about actual public forum rounds. First, I want to talk about case building, which is important in public forum because like we talked about, pro and con does not have a specific time that they speak, who speaks first, second. Um, so it leads to some issues because the con team can speak first and negate a resolution that hasn't had any support for it yet. Um, and that leads to some things, which I know you wanted to talk about this a little bit for case building a, a con case. Oh, yes. I remember what you're talking about now. Um, so, yes, with negative side of debate in public forum, it's tempting to want to put blocks as contentions in your debate. And what I mean by putting a block as a contention is there are going to be a handful of arguments that you run into seven out of 10, nine out of 10 rounds on certain topics. Every team is going to run them because they're good. Usually the problem is, is that not literally every team is going to run them. So don't feel the need to put a counter to that really common argument in your negative case or in your affirmative case, if it's, you know, the opposite way in hopes of defeating your opponent before they even read their point. Don't do that. Just respond to it as it comes up because if they don't have that point in their case, then you've just brought up something that's mostly atopical. And even if they're irrelevant. Yeah. And even if they do have that in the case, it's not going to have as much impact as it right. will if you read it after they bring up their point. Right. So just that's a good general case building tip. Don't worry about blocks until you actually have to block an argument. Don't put it in your case. Now, whenever you're building a case, just generally what you're going to have is an introduction where you say, my partner Lucas and I stand in firm affirmation or negation of the resolution stated, blah, 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 blah. Um, we stand in affirmation or negation for the following reasons. And you can give a short little introduction to it. If you've ever written an essay or whether it be informational, argumentation, essay, um, this is your introduction paragraph. You state your stance. Um, give a brief overview of your reasons, and then actually move into the reasons themselves. Um, the reasons in this instance being your contentions. Um, typically, the 
the meta right now is a three contention case. There's a good reason for that. There is a substantial amount of scientific inquiry that has shown us people remember things in groups of threes. Yeah. So to make your case more memorable, it is rather advantageous to make it three points that you can say about three different times in the round, realistically. Um, And those contentions, a lot of people run into issues that I've seen where their contentions are the same thing. Their first contention, the second contention say essentially the same thing, maybe a little bit different, and the third contention is different, whatever. That is the point of subpoints. So whenever you make a subpoint under a contention, it'll have your contention heading, contention one. Um, this leads to this. Under subpoint A, you can either have different links, different impacts, different examples. If you have two pieces of evidence that you want to use, but they both say pretty much the same thing, maybe with a little bit of difference, put them under the same contention as subpoints. That allows you to pretty much have one point um, or one contention with multiple things under it. It's very advantageous to use. Um, it kind of breaks up the flow of the round a little bit, um, and it's it's nice to have. It, gets, it builds a good wall of arguments for you. At the same time, it's also good for your contentions to couple together, at least to a certain extent. So in the same way that you don't want to say three things that are virtually the same with different wordings, you don't want to say three things that are so far apart that you can't couple the impacts together so that all three of them actually fall on your side. Right. Um, with these topics, they are these resolutions are made to be about what's going on currently in the world. Um, that is the point of public forum debate. It's based on Ted Turner's crossfire, which was a current events a debate on CNN way back in the day. Um, actually, not way back in the day, but... It's like the 80s, right? I think it was the 90s. I really? don't know, though. I have no idea. But the point is, public forum debate is based on what's going on this month there's going to be a lot of evidence on it. You can find a lot of different arguments, um, but they all lead back to the same thing, or at least should. Um, so that's how you should build a case around your side. Um, then, of course, you need impacts. What? Oh, I was just going to say, so we've talked about you know, how to approach public forum, what the purpose is, how to read a resolution, what the two different teams are, how to flow the arguments in the round. And you're probably sitting there wondering, man, I have everything except for what I'm actually supposed to say. And that's what we're about to talk about. Uh, with case building even, that's not even all that you're going to say. That's just the evidence that supports what you're going to say. Yeah. And this is what's going to take us into the speeches that actually make up the public forum round. Right. The last thing I wanted to say on case building. My apologies. That's okay. Um, is impacts. After each of your pieces of evidence, after each of your contentions, you need to show the judge how this affects them. Because whenever you're reading evidence, a lot of times there is um, different, different examples. There are different words being used that you, who has done a lot of research on it, knows what it means. But to the judge, they don't know why it affects them and why they should vote on that piece of evidence. So you need to be able to tell them. Because of this, um, you're going to have higher taxes. 
or this many people are going to die and it's going to affect you this way. Always relate it to the judge and always give the judge an impact to weigh the round with. So don't forget impacts. And drawing those impacts out and making them clear is equally the first and the second speaker's job. There's a bit of a social faux pas going on, uh, at least it was when we were in debate, about how the first speaker generally would bring up all of the evidence and impacts and the second speaker would almost exclusively attack case. But that is not very conducive to the second speaker's final speech, that being the final focus where they are actually supposed to summarize the round. So both partners need to be touching on the impacts and how they relate to the judge. Otherwise, you're not going to have that powerful finish that you're really looking for. Right. Um, So we'll actually, we'll talk a little bit about that now. So we're going to go down each of the speeches um, and sort of how they will work. So the first one is the case speech, um, the constructive speech. This is where the first speaker gives the resolution, gives their support or denial of it, um, and then gives their points. So as a first speaker, you have this speech and your rebuttal, which we'll talk about in a second. But the case speech is the first thing the judge is going to hear from you, and it is your chance to lay out your main points. Um, that case building we just talked about, this is the speech where you read that case. So this is where you're going to say, we stand in support, blah, 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 blah. Here's our points. And this is where you give the judge your impacts. This is your... Um, first impression. It's your first impression, and it's also sort of your... Um, man, I can't think of a good word for it. It is your... I don't want to say, like... This is your ammunition for the round. Um, this this is your opportunity to lay out your biggest cards. Um, and I don't mean debate cards. I was trying to use that as, like, magician, like, card up the sleeve kind of thing. This is your chance to lay out the big guns. This is what you got. This is why you should vote for us. These are your most important points you can find. And this is what your side of the debate is going to be based around. Now, after this is all laid out, there is a crossfire, which we're talking about in a minute. But the other team will come up and give an attacking speech against this. And this is a second speaker's job. So Luke is going to talk about that. This speech is so pleasant. I have many fond memories of giving these kinds of speeches because this is the part where you go up to the podium and as the second speaker, you've had a maximum of seven minutes to tear apart three well-structured arguments that somebody has had over a month and a half to put together. And watching the light fall out of their eyes as you do it is just so satisfying. Uh, Maybe I'm sick for that, but I don't care. There's a certain satisfaction in being victorious in competitive activities. And what you're going to be doing in these attack speeches is just that. You're going to run down the case that was brought up by the affirmative team in a very similar fashion. Going down it in the exact same order that they went down it is very conducive to proving your point because it helps keep the judge on track, it's gonna help keep you on track. So it's essentially gonna go something like this. You're gonna walk up there and you're going to say, my partner Quentin and I stand in firm negation of the resolution today that says resolved, da 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 da. 
starting with my opponent's first contention. And their first contention, they said this, and they had this impact. Well, to counter that, we have a card from the CNN in 2018 that says that's actually not true. And their second contention, they said, well, your team's dumb. Well, to counter that, we have two pieces of evidence, one from the Brookings Institute in 2018 and one from blah, 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 that says that actually, no, you're dumb. And their third point, you'll do the exact same thing. And there's a secondary job that exists for the second speaker in this attacking speech. And due to the fact that it's only a four-minute speech, you're going to want to save about 45 seconds for this secondary job. And that is after you finish attacking your opponent's case, you should then, if you can, time allowing, go back to your case and re-hit your main impacts and reiterate those to the judge and maybe even show how some of your impacts might directly clash with their impacts and even cancel them out. And if you can do that every time you go up and give an attacking speech, move down your opponent's case methodically, retie your impacts against theirs and show why you support the resolution better or why you negate the resolution better, you're going to be doing your job perfectly as the second speaker. Yep. As a afterthought, don't worry so much about the rehitting your own impacts part of it if you don't have time. If you hit a team and they're running a four contention case with two sub points on every case, every contention, and there's a piece of evidence for every sub point for a total of eight pieces of evidence that you have to then address with eight unique pieces of evidence of your own that you had to assemble across a seven minute at the most and a it would actually be eleven minute. at the most. Eleven? Mm-hmm. How so? Well, from the time that their case begins, you don't have all of their contentions. If Oh, wait. I was thinking, never mind. That's been too long since I debated. <laughs> so, yeah, you have seven minutes at the most and three minutes at the least to construct this speech. If they have a big case, don't worry as much about hitting your impacts again. Just try to fit it in. If you can, not going over time is more important than covering content. Yeah. And that's really all there is about it. Then after your attacking speech, you're going to have a crossfire between the attackers. And we're going to talk about all three of the crossfires at the end, because every crossfire kind of has a different purpose or it can have a different purpose. And this is how we always use them. And you guys might be able to do it the same way and find some luck. We don't know. Yep. So after those attacking speeches happen, um, it is now time for the first speaker to come back up and give their rebuttal speech. This is where, the first speaker will look at the opponent's attacks made on their case. You only have two minutes. Right. The rebuttal speech is only two minutes. Um, so you're going to generally, you have a lot to say and not enough time, but that's the case for all speeches. Um, so what you're going to do is you're going to look at the attacks that in this example, Lucas just made um, on, on your case, the attacks that your opponents made on your case. And you're going to do the same thing that Lucas did, except you're attacking their attacks you are responding and defending your case against their attacks. So you're going to go down and you're going to say, our contention one says this. In response, my opponents attack this by saying, blah, 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 blah. This is why that's wrong. Our contention two said this. Our opponents attack this by saying, yada, yada, yada. And this is why this is wrong. In the end, you want to say, all of our points still stand. Our case still stands. Please, we urge a pro or a con ballot, whatever it is. So you just want... The end, you want the last word on the arguments if you can get it there. Um, you want to 
defend your case with evidence against their attacks um, and show why your case still stands at the end of the debate. Because at this point, you're nearing the end of the debate. You're on the second half. You're on the home stretch. Um, so you want to be able to say that your case still stands strong to their attacks. And always end it when you have time with please vote pro or con. Um, and that's the biggest thing with rebuttal speeches is just making sure that you respond to all the arguments because your case needs to stand strong at the end of the debate. And the rebuttal is also your last chance to bring up new evidence in response. New arguments. No, that's correct. New arguments in response to these arguments that have been made against your case. You're not allowed to bring up new arguments in the final focus, which is the next speech that we're talking about yep. due to the fact that it is unfair. Yeah. Uh, plain and simple. They just made a rebuttal speech uh, that is countering your counter to their point initially. And we get it. Both sides could go back and forth all day. You could bring up a limitless string of answer twos and blocks on tops of blocks on tops of blocks until you're 13 layers deep and the argument's so convoluted nobody knows what it's actually about in the first place. And we don't like that. Nobody likes that. That's unnecessary. That's the kind of discussion that happens in the think tanks that are gathering the information for you in the first place. So as a general rule of thumb and as what I believe to be official rules for the most part, you're not allowed to bring up new arguments in the final focus. Right. And keep in mind we're saying new arguments. You can bring up new evidence. But only if in it's relevant to an argument you've already made. Right. If if there is something up in the air about the evidence, you can bring up new evidence in the last speech to support something that has already been brought up. But you cannot draw a new impact out of that new evidence because right. that would be the same as making a new argument. No new arguments in the last speech because there would be no chance to respond. The second thing about the final focus is what I have been taught to be called crystallization. It's something that you and your partner should be aiming to accomplish from the moment you walk in the door of a debate round. Crystallization is really simple. It's quite literally what it sounds like. Think of crystals, how they are generally clear and they are solid and they come to a fine point. And that's what you're trying to do with all of your arguments and your impacts. So like we said earlier, people generally remember things in threes. Each of your contentions goes going to have an impact. So if at the end of your case read, your partner goes back over your impacts and says, hey, this is our impact one. This is our impact two. This is our impact three. And then at the end of your attacking speech, you go, this is how our impact one actually negates their contention one. This is how our impact two negates their contention too, so on and so forth. And then at the end of your final focus, you can then also be like, oh, remember those impacts we talked about earlier that are still relevant because my partner defended them appropriately in the rebuttal speech? These are those impacts one more time. So you're giving them three impacts, three different times throughout the round, ideally ones you won. <laughs> yeah. And... That's going to be your best chance for getting your arguments to come through clearly to the judge. So just remember, crystallization. Keep it clear, keep it solid, and bring it to a fine point. And uh, what was it that you always said? You always said, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them? Yes, that is not what I always said. That is what Mr. White, or Brian White, if you rather, from Carthage High School taught me. 
is that you do. You tell them what you're going to tell them. That's the beginning of your case. You go, today my partner and I will be discussing points one, two, and three. Let's go ahead and get into point one. And then you tell them, this is point one. And then you tell them what you told them. And our point one, we said this. And our point two, we said this. And our point three, we said this. For those three reasons, please vote for us. And maybe it sounds simple. It's because it is. Debate isn't hard. What makes debate difficult is the quality of argumentation involved. It is not the actual structure of the round itself. Right. Kiss. Keep it simple, stupid. Exactly. Uh, This is not an event that's meant to confuse anybody who's watching. This is not an event that is meant to be difficult for those participating in to stay within the structure of. Right. This debate is literally meant for somebody to walk in off the street and understand what's going on. Maybe all they've heard about is a couple things they saw on CNN and they already have a biased opinion about it. It doesn't matter because if you come in with three strong impacts that you reiterate to them three different times, they're at least going to have those thoughts in their head and it might just sway the ballot in your favor. Yep. So that's the basis of the speeches. Now, like we talked about in between the switching. So when first speeches are over, there are uh, crossfires. The way that works is first crossfire is both first speakers coming up. Now, kind of going back to etiquette a little bit, typically whatever team spoke first gets to ask the first question. It is totally allowed to say, since I spoke first, may I have the first question? Um, that, that seems to be everywhere. It's pretty fair because you might ask yourself, why does it matter who has the first question? It doesn't necessarily matter, but going second in a public forum round is somewhat advantageous. So to kind of offset some of that advantage and to give the first speaking team the best chance to clarify anything they might have missed in your case, you give them the first question. Yeah. Now, the purpose of Crossfire is a couple things. After the first speeches, anyway. This is the first round of Crossfire. Right. Um, So the purpose of Crossfire can be used for um, clarification. Hey, what was your first contention about? What did that mean? Uh, Who was the source on it? Can we see it? That kind of thing. It can also be um, sort of an attack. Um, If you disagree with something in their case and you already have an argument for it, um, you can attack it, but it needs to be in the form of a question. So you need to be able to say, wouldn't you agree that your first contention says this, but blah, 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 blah. Um, or did you know that actually this is the case, that kind of thing. Um, whatever it is, it has to be a question and there should be a clear question and a clear answer to it. And then that part is over. You have to be careful though, because someone's going to totally hit you with the objection, the witness is testifying if you're not careful. And by that, I mean, you're going to go up there and try to give a speech in Crossfire. Right. Don't do that. Crossfires aren't speeches. Keep your answers short. Keep it simple. Give some explanation if explanation is required, but don't try to speak for the whole three minutes because it looks bad on you. It doesn't do what you think it's going to do. It's not going to give you this upper hand because it just looks bad. Um, and yeah, it'll, it'll piss some people off for first speakers. My favorite questions for first speakers to ask, and Quentin would almost always ask these because you know, he knows I loved it is to ask the other person to, if they have a strong argument, that's maybe rather technical say, Hey, 
could you explain your first contention to me again in your own words and see if they actually understand what their evidence says? That doesn't mean you're going to beat that argument, but it means you might be able to illustrate to the judge that they're not making that argument. It's being handed to them by the card. Right. Make sure they understand it, because if they do, that's a good thing. Everybody understands it more because of their explanation. And if they don't, that gives you a good opportunity to destroy it. 100%. Now, another great question to ask in the very first crossfire, if you're first speaker, um, which is something I like to do a lot. Can is, I see a copy of your case? See, can I see a copy of your case? Yeah, always ask that. Um, but also ask, for one, what their biggest impact is or what their biggest argument is. And then just ask them straight up. If we can prove that this is wrong, should we win? So that gives them either one, the opportunity to say, yeah, yeah. And that lets you get a clear shot at winning. Or they're going to say, well, no. And that gives you a chance to show the judge, well, this must not be that big of an impact then. It is a, uh, it's a catch-22 question. You're catching them between a rock and a hard place for sure. So always ask them, whatever, whatever their biggest point is, straight up, if we can prove that this argument is untrue, should we win the debate round? You have to be careful, though, because what you're doing there is you're setting an expectation for yourself on the round. Both teams have then agreed that there is a specific thing that needs to be satisfied for one team to win. Right. So that, don't ask that if you don't have an argument for it. <laughs> exactly. If you set up their kingpin argument to be the one that has to topple for you to win the round and then you can't beat it, you just doomed yourself. Right. So what about second crossfire? What, what were your strategies there? I almost never had questions for anybody. See, as a second speaker... I would say everything I had to say during my speech. And really the only questions I would have to ask during my second crossfire was anything that Quentin, or in this instance, that your first speaker, your partner, would want you to ask before the rebuttal speech. Oh, yeah. See, if there was an attack I wasn't sure of, because at this point you're writing a rebuttal. If you're first speaker, I would say, Lucas, can you ask about this? I need I don't know what they're saying here. And this is actually a good time to bring up the preparatory time that we brought up earlier. There is two minutes of prep time granted to both people or both teams in the round. The I would recommend not using prep time before crossfire, except for... I don't think you for, can. You, you technic- can. No, you can't use... What? You're allowed to. It's just pointless for the most part, except for this instance where you might have a handful of things that you really need your partner to ask them. But even then, I wouldn't use your prep time. I would just have your partner write it on a sticky note and right. hand it to you and as you're is, going. Yeah, this is where that sticky notes thing come in, comes in handy. If I'm first speaker and Lucas is up there in his second speaker crossfire round or crossfire uh, time, and I need him to ask a question, I'm not going to say, hey, Lucas, uh, ask him this. I'm going to write it down on a piece of paper, and I'm just going to tap him on the shoulder and hand it to him. Um, don't disrupt. Just if you have something to ask, he'll ask it for you. He or she, sorry. Um, your partner will ask it did for you. Did you just assume my gender? I did. Your hair's really long. Wow. <laughs> we're um, not going to touch that one. That's going to be on the After Hours podcast. No, we're leaving that off the After Hours podcast. More partners too. After Dark coming soon to a podcast near you. So the last thing is the Grand Crossfire. Oh, hold on. Sorry. Oh, just really quick with the second speaker crossfire. This is just my style. 
but I found it to be better to give strong answers as a second speaker and to have the first speaker ask good questions. Yeah. Because generally speaking, the first speaker is the inquisitive one who is presenting your information and the second speaker is the, what's a good word for it? I almost want to say kinetic, but I don't know if that's the right word. I don't know what that Um, means. But the second speaker is the one who is attempting to obviously attack their cases and to bring down their points. So having a good response to your opponent's questions is only going to illustrate your knowledge of the topic more and more. But again, don't testify. You're not up there to give a speech. Just give a short, concise, simple answer. Second speakers, just know your arguments, man. Uh, Be able to argue the exact same thing in five different ways, and you'll be able to answer any question that gets thrown at you. And something that I've always seen, um, which we ran into issues with this when we first started being partners, about a few months in, we hit our stride very well. We had a good partner relationship. But second speakers, believe it or not, you need to know what your case says, too. (laughs) Yeah, um, you don't necessarily even need to flow your case, but you should at least have a copy of it on hand and you should have read it at least half as many times as the first speaker. Yeah, you should you should know what it says. You should know who the sources are. Um, you should know what the arguments are just just in case. I mean, typically the first speaker, the first speaker's uh, round is based around the case. The second speaker's round is based around the opponent's case. That's typically how it is. But if that second speaker from the other team is like, hey, can you explain your guys' second contention to me in your own words? And then you go, I don't know what our second contention is. You probably just lost that round. Yeah, that looks awful. Um, and this goes for everybody. Know your know your car or your case. If something that I always just take notes in my head, mental points that I give whenever I'm judging. If somebody asks a question about a case and that person has to look at their case to know what they're talking about, that's some points off in my head. For me, I would almost go so far as to recommend that the first speaker memorize their case read. Uh, Quentin did it often and it was very advantageous for him to be able to even at sometimes just to flex a little to turn the case face down on the podium <laughs> and just stand there with his arms behind his back and answer every single question about our case they ask with proper citations and direct quotes. And it was just very satisfying and it's very good for your points in the round. And that kind of thing also knowing your case and even, yeah, if, if you can't have it memorized, it's hard. I was only able to memorize it because I would read it so much. I would practice at home. I'd read my case to my dad. Um, I would give it all the time when I had the chance just to know it. Um, That helps with giving the speech itself. Something that I always tell people when they are reading case, um, anytime I mentor or whatever, is whenever you're reading your case to the judge, you are telling them a story. You're not reading them a book. You don't want to be looking down, reading it word for word, and sounding like you're reading it. You want to be looking at the judge and explaining it. You're telling a story. You're not reading the case. If that makes any sense, I hope it does. It makes a lot of good sense, in my opinion. So you need to be able to know what your case says without having to look at it, um, because it'll help portray that you know what you're talking about to the judge. Now, when you're talking about talk, knowing what you're talking about, <laughs> it's a good way for us to segue into the grand crossfire the grand- i'm gonna be honest i think the grand crossfire is a waste of time i see it as a 
very polite time suck that exists so that the second speakers have three more minutes to write their final focuses. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. I also think it's a, you know, the, the pattern of speeches in public forum is pretty evident. Constructive crossfire attack crossfire rebuttal crossfire final focus. Right. Um, so I think, I think it plays a good part. It, it definitely does exist partly as here's some prep time. Um, but I think it, it does have an important an important play in the in the debate round. Real quick on etiquette and grand crossfire, pretty common rule of thumb that we're all familiar with, and some of you are probably going to hear, is that you remain seated during grand crossfire. Grand crossfire, excuse me. Do you know why that is, Quentin, or the legend as to why we're supposed yeah, to sit? Yeah, I think it's urban myth. Um, I'm sure you've heard the story. I guess when public forum debate first came to fruition, there was a grand crossfire where they used to all stand like you do a normal crossfire. Um, and somebody got so heated that they stabbed somebody else in the neck. I don't know. With a pin. With a pin. Not a knife. Not a knife, yeah. Grabbed a, a nice old uh, a G2, probably. Uh, do you mean Pilot G2 is one of the finest riding utensils that exist on the planet? Pilot G2, hit us up. Give us some love, please. Anyway, um, yeah, stay sitting during Grand Crossfire. That's just how it is. As for purpose of the Grand Cross, it's just a good last chance to clarify, especially due to the fact that you just had the rebuttal speeches immediately prior. So if somebody brought up a block that you don't think is actually a block, you could say really quick, Quentin, could you, in your own words, explain to me how it is you linked the attack Against, the block, excuse me, against our attack on your first contention. Right. I mean, generally the way it's set up is that the first speaker crossfire is for the first speakers to ask questions about the case speech. Then the second speaker crossfire is for the second speakers to ask questions about the attacking speeches. And then the grand crossfire is to have any questions from anything before this um, because the debate round is about to end. There's a total of four minutes left. Um, so it's one last chance to say, hey, you never answered this. What about this? Or, hey, you never gave us this evidence that we asked for, etc." Or even to be like, hey, do you remember that thing that we said if we said was wrong and you agreed to, we would win the round? Would you not agree that at this point we've proven it's incorrect? And this is their last chance to give a firm no or a yes and for you to either win the round at that point or to have something great to talk about in Final Focus if they say no and you totally did win it. Yep, it's just one last opportunity to talk about what needs to be talked about um, before you give your Final Focus. You can even work your impacts in there and tell them what you told them one more time if you want. Yep, just hit that hit that rebuttal or hit that um, that restatement of everything. It's a great opportunity. But I really think that's uh, that's about it for a introductory bit of public forum. This is going to be part of a two or maybe even three, depending on how long the next one goes, episode series about public forum. This one was intended to be an introduction and our next episode is going to be covering some more debate theory about public forum and what we think good ways to approach the speeches are and for what purpose they can be served. Right. It's, I, I don't want to say advanced because we're not trying to seem like we know better than anybody or we're better than anybody, but just some, some things that are more common at higher levels. 
I think that we should do actual cases and maybe some yeah. actual debate for that one because it'll make it a lot easier to talk about flipping an argument, crystallization, yeah. and things such as that with literal examples rather than us talking about how pro and con is dumb. Right. So a couple of things we're going to be talking about there is um, I want to talk about flex cases um, and how to run those, how to write those, how to run them. Um, I want to talk about indictment arguments where you talk about what's wrong with the author of evidence to be the evidence. Um, you wanted to talk about impacts and length turns and everything. Yeah, I wanted to give you guys three different ways to flip an argument because there are so many times that you may not even realize, and this is going to be a really quick prime example of it, that your argument is actually just like their argument it just uses a different scale to measure it. A prime example might be that the affirmative says they're going to save $2 billion for the economy if you vote for them, whereas the negative team might say you're going to save 100,000 lives if you vote for them. Well, it's hard to put lives versus money on a scale because even though it seems cold, it is still the real world, and you have to consider the stability of an economy when making these kinds of policy decisions. But the negative team in this instance that's arguing for the lives can then go bring up some wonderful United States Department of Labor statistics about how the average American over their lifetime makes about a million dollars in economic contributions. So then you have, I don't know, what is that, like $1 trillion that you can say those 100,000 people. Is that correct or is that a billion? Uh, a thousand millions is a billion. So a hundred thousand remember what hundred thousand millions would be a trillion. Yeah. Um, so then you not only have the lives argument, but you've also flipped the argument of econ impact by saying, Oh, look, judge, we save lives. And because we save lives, those lives are going to cause larger economic stimulation than if you voted for the affirmative in the first place. So we win lives and econ. There's no reason to vote for them now. Yeah. And whatever. that's a really basic sense of flipping an argument, but we're going to try and give you more specific examples. Yeah. So that's what to, ex what's to expect on the next episode. Um, we're doing this because, Starting in January, we'll have our actual schedule for releasing two episodes on each public forum topic, switching back and forth between policy and LD topics, and then hitting some IE um, episodes. We couldn't do that this month because we started on an off month and weren't ready, so that's why we're doing some introduction to debate stuff. Um, there will be more of this stuff, but yes, that public forum theory episode will be next week. Um, I think that about sums it up. Yeah, a couple of things. First, um, $5 off Candor Briefs if you give me the promo code Denzel. That's a good one. Yeah, promo code Denzel uh, for $5 off the Candor Briefs. Um, the first release for the January topic is out. Um, it's ready. It's pretty good. The second release was almost ready, and then we had some unfortunate technical issues. Yep, my computer crashed before I saved it. But we're going to start backing things up on external hard drives. Yes. Because if you don't already do that and you work with computers, you should totally do that. It's going to save you a mass amount of headaches. Make a system or sore point, too. Dude, whenever I worked at Geek Squad, I would like... I would tell people they're idiots because they didn't save stuff and on external hard drives. And didn't make a system or sore point. Yeah, and then it just happened to me. I feel really bad about myself. So, um, yeah, second release might be out a little bit later, but it's still going to be around the 1st of January. I'll get it done. Who needs sleep? Um, but, yeah, Denzel for $5 off the current release if you want it. Um, email me at candorbriefs at gmail.com. Follow that at candor 
on Twitter at Candorbriefs and follow us on Twitter at Former Partners. As a warm heartfelt from us to you, we want to wish everybody happy holidays as it is that time of year. And I think that sums it up for this week's episode of the Former Partners Podcast. I am Lucas. And I am Quentin. Thank you for listening. Uh, what do I always say at the end? Oh, I say thanks, enjoy, and good luck. And happy holidays. Yeah, happy holidays. All right, bye. Every time.